Uh, once again, welcome back to the year of our Lord, 2019. Man, who would have ever thought I was reflecting back a little bit, just kind of thinking 19 years into a new century. And I remember back in the, the big scare of when, you know, I think it was we were going to go 2000 or 2001, I can't remember. And, you know, all the computers were going to stop and the world was going to come to an end. Uh, you know, and I mean, people were flipping out and... Uh, I think that we saved a few extra bottles of water to stick in the house in case, you know, that we got thirsty during the night. So uh, we, we woke up, and, and lo and behold, we were still here. Uh, so, all right, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and pray and ask his blessing on this time as we come together. Father, once again, um, we come before you. And Lord, it is amazing. It is amazing that you would die for us, for me. God, that we are able this morning to declare you as king, as Lord, as friend, Savior. Lord, what, what a privilege that is. And I pray, God, that you would uh, just pull the hardness of hearts back this morning so that we indeed really see that privilege that we have. God, that you would comfort this morning as only you're able to do. Father, that you would convict this morning as only you're able to do. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just sweep up and down the aisles this morning and convince men and women that are here today of the truth of your word. I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word this morning, Lord. And know, Lord, that uh, it, it is just an honor and a privilege, and it's not a right. So I pray that I would take this time, and God, that uh, I would use it for your purpose, for your glory, for your kingdom, and for nothing less. So we love you, and we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together as a people this morning to worship your holy name. And now, Lord, we honor you in that by preaching your word. And we pray, God, that it would be seen as an act of worship in the preaching and an act of worship in the hearing and doing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name, and the church said. All right, well, you can turn to your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to be picking up uh, where we left off last week uh, in chapter, or verse 6 of chapter 5, and we're kind of coming to a close. And as a matter of fact, uh, I anticipate we have this, this lesson, and then we will have, uh, we will have uh, one more out of this book uh, that has been tremendous, I think, in going back and looking to see what the goal behind John writing this and what the goal was for us as a people. Uh, to really have an assurance of salvation, to know that you are saved. Now, let me go on as well. Now, one of the things that uh, I heard a guy say, and I agree with it, I really, you know, when I preach the word, I'm not trying to target a certain people. I'm not trying to target the lost. I'm not trying to target somebody that, uh, that needs encouragement. I think that when we preach the word, we simply let the word speak for itself. And so hopefully, as we've gone through this, God's word and by his spirit has been ministering to each and every one of us. I can say this, that if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no reason in the world that you do not have the evidence of that because that this book has taught the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and teaches how that you can have a relationship with him and how that you can know that you have a relationship with him. And so we want to continue on in that this morning. Uh, next, after we finish uh, next week, uh, then the following week, we're actually going to pick up in 1 Corinthians where we left off uh, on a Sunday night sometime back 
uh, way back, way in 2018. Uh, and so if you're interested in that, we're going to be picking up in chapter 3. You can get online and you can listen to those messages so you can catch up on those if you would like. I think it would be a good, uh, good way to do it. I will give a slight introduction when we start again. But today, uh, 1 John chapter 5 and verses 6 through 12. And let me just uh, kind of give us an introduction this morning. Um, you know, I was thinking as I, as I started to write this lesson out, uh, studying on it and, and thinking of a way to introduce it, uh, that I found myself thinking really in a forensic type way in the sense of a court forensics, in, in other words, law. And, and one of the things that I thought that in almost all court cases, there is a point in which testimony is given from a witness and it's entered into that trial or hearing. And in our text this morning, we really see the testimony of God. Now, I want you to just let that sink in. It is the testimony of God that we see in the scriptures today. Therefore, every bit of our attention ought to be focused on what God is going to speak to us about that testimony and what the witness of that testimony is. John, from the outset, has emphasized the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Being God, come in the flesh, all man, and yet all God. As a matter of fact, you will remember as we introduced this whole series that it was speaking and saying that there were a group of heretics who were denying the deity of Jesus Christ or denying the humanity of Jesus Christ, and either one of those is a sinful outlook. You see, Christ has to be all man and all God in order to bring us salvation that we have just sung about. Now listen, this is 2019. We're one year closer to our Lord, so I think we can get excited. Y'all are looking like Presbyterians out there this morning. <laughs> All right. So, he emphasizes that humanity, uh, his humanity and his deity both. And in this scripture this morning, we're going to find the testimony of God. The, the message is called, No Greater Testimony, No Greater Witness. And what we're going to see in this testimony from God is that we're going to see that he has a witness of the Father, we have a witness of water and blood together, and we have a witness of the Spirit. And as we listen to this witness, for some it's going to be new information, for some it is old information, but wherever you find yourself this morning and hearing this message, you are going to be called upon after hearing the evidence of the testimony to make a decision. And you're going to have to either accept what the Word of God says or you will have to deny what the Word of God says. There is no in-between. And if we as God's people can grab hold of that truth that there is no gray area when it comes to the truth of God's word, right? So we want to present this evidence in a way that God lays it out. And here's the main points this morning. We're going to look at the witness, we'll look at the testimony, and then we'll look at the verdict. So the witness, the testimony and the verdict. And so the first, let's just begin with our verse 6 of chapter 5 and talk about the witness. And it says, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. 
And it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the Spirit, and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And if you receive the witness of men, now listen, this is important, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. So we want to speak about the witness this morning, and in doing that, what we are really dealing with is the testimony of the witness. What does the witness have to say? As a matter of fact, as we look at this scripture this morning, the word testify in some form, whether it's a verb or a noun, is used nine different times. That's what we call the law of recurrence. God is saying, listen, I want you to pay attention to the testimony or to the witness of the testimony that I am giving here this morning. And the message revolves around really the testimony of God that is giving concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the scriptures make it clear that you and I are to establish the truth not by one witness, but by two to three witnesses. Can you say amen? amen. Right now, let me, just, let me just pause. I hadn't planned on saying this. But I think this is a great place just to teach a Bible principle. Listen, if you ever hear of rumors... You don't go off of a rumor, you go off of the witness of two to three credible people. Oh, man, let me, let me try that again. You go off of the credibility of two or three witnesses, not off of what somebody, one person has to say. Now that's important because that is what the Lord is going to do because he will never violate his own word and he is going to have, here we have the witness of the water, the blood, and the Spirit, and ultimately God himself. As a matter of fact, we just read in verse 9, he says, if you accept the testimony of men, his witness is greater. Now what does that mean? It means this this morning, that if you're willing to go and sit in a court of law and listen to what somebody says, and you're not willing to listen to what the Word of God says, you have things all turned around. Because then you're putting more faith in the testimony of a man rather than the testimony of God Almighty himself. Does that make sense? And so that's what John is trying to get across by the Holy Spirit this morning saying, listen, it is God who comes and he says, here is the testimony. Verse 9, the character of the witness, right? This would be a sub-point, the character of the witness. And God is the one in question. May I say this morning, how dare anyone question the testimony of God Almighty. Amen. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's, there is this speaking now saying, listen, we don't need, I, I've, I've been saying it for a while because it's, it's a big, big uh, guy who's teaching it saying, we can jettison what the Old Testament says. We don't have to say what the Bible says. What we say, well, John says, or Peter says, or Paul says, how do we know where they got that? It's in the Bible. And people are saying, don't worry about what the Bible says, just worry about what the man says. No, John says that if you accept the testimony of men, that's fine, but the testimony of God is greater than man. Listen, if you're going to listen to anybody, you listen to what the Word of God says, Amen. not what some man says. Amen. That includes your pastor. 
That includes any teacher that you would have. You should verify whatever is said by the word of God. That's why I ask you in the mornings to read with me and see what the word of God says. As a matter of fact, we studied through here and says that you don't have a need of a teacher. He says that the Holy Spirit teaches you. Now, we know he gives pastors teachers, and we know that. But he says, listen, the Spirit of God quickens in you what's truth and what isn't. Right? If you're prayerful, if you're a serious Bible student. So the witness of God. Again, in all societies, we take the witness of men to establish the facts of an event. John says that if we are to accept what, me, uh, what men say, we certainly need to accept the testimony of God. And we're going to look at that evidence a little bit later on. The second, the testimony of the witness. Subpoint again of, of the, this one. The testimony of the witness. And the testimony of the witness is this. It is in reference to Jesus Christ, who is his son, who is eternal God. Now, for me, I have a hard time, brethren, understanding that people don't get it that Jesus Christ is God. He is creator. He has not been created. But you remember as I read through a survey some time back that over 75% of born-again believers believe that Jesus Christ was created. He has not been created. He is the creator. He is eternal in his existence along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We want to talk about the witness. This would be... We've talked about the Father, now let's talk about the water and the blood. I just want to clarify what this means in verse 6. You see that it says, this is he that came by the water, by water and by blood, even Jesus Christ. And when you read this out in Greek and when it says, uh, verse 6, for this is he, it says, this is the one. Not a one, the one. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the water and the blood? What is the witness of the water and the blood? And we'll break this down in much greater detail just a little bit later. But the water is uh, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is when Christ came to the Jordan and John the Baptist was there and he baptized the Lord Jesus Christ. And the blood is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what the blood represents there. So he, what we're talking about then is that time of ministry that the Lord had from the time of his baptism until the time that he was crucified on the cross. And he says, in this time frame, the Father says, here is the witness that verifies he is the one. And we're going to break that down in detail as we go along. It's very important. It's a very important important doctrinal point that Jesus Christ was God coming to flesh that he was God when his ministry began and that he was God when that ministry ended now why why is that important because again a heretical teaching that was being taught some taught that when that Jesus was just a man and that when he was baptized all of a sudden the Spirit came on him, and then that's when he became the God-man. 
But as he died, they don't believe that Jesus Christ was God when he died, that the Spirit had departed before his death. And therefore, he say God couldn't die. So John, again, through the Holy Spirit, is establishing, no, he is God from beginning to end, and will go through and let the evidence sort itself out. So, the third witness, the Spirit. Just want to go initially by saying this. Does the Spirit is a witness, and how did he do this? It was through his empowering. It was through seeing through Christ yielding to the Holy Spirit that Jesus accomplished his earthly ministry, and that evidence will be shown in our supporting text as we get into it this morning. So now we have the witnesses there. We have really the Father who is the overall witness, and he says his testimony, God is greater than man. We have the water and the blood, and we have the Spirit. So these are the witnesses, and here is the testimony or the evidence that they give. And let's just take those as we go along the water. And as stated earlier, the evidence. So evidence is point number two, your main point. Evidence, here's the sub-point, the water. As stated earlier, the water is a reference to the baptism of Jesus, which began his public ministry. Now let me say as a side note that the act of baptism is an act of obedience. Let me say that again, and then we can get like a wave going from front to back, right? The, the, the act of obedience, or the act of a baptism is really an act of obedience. Every single believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. Now, I believe not only that, I believe that every believer who proclaims uh, to have loyalty and faith and honoring the lordship of Jesus Christ should be baptized before they ever begin a public ministry of any type. Because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. I will go a little further and say that if you're unwilling to be baptized, you will be unwilling to follow Christ in anything else. Right? Now, I didn't understand that for a long time because I had the cart before the horse, but when somebody explained it to me, and by the way, if you're not sure, we'll be teaching a, a members class coming up in about three weeks, and one of the things we'll cover is baptism, and that'll, you'll be able to sort it out at that point. John recognized his need to be baptized of the Lord Jesus. You remember as the Lord came on the scene, John was out, and he was baptizing those, and his was a was a baptism of repentance. In other words, he was, he was teaching the Jews there that just because you call yourself a Jew doesn't mean that you have a right relationship with God. You need to have a repentant heart. And what they were doing is he was baptizing a baptism of repentance. And so when they were being baptized, they were saying, we realize that it's just not our Jewishness that gets us into heaven. Let me just give you a little side note on this. Just because you've been raised in a church, in a Christian home, does not mean that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? That's what they needed to understand. They needed to know that I need to repent. Therefore, you and I all have to repent and come to that place as well. But I don't want to get on that too much as just say this, that when John saw Jesus come on the scene, he didn't recognize him initially. 
But what he does say when he recognizes him, he recognizes his need that he should be baptized by Jesus instead of the other way around because he cries out and he says, Behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Not a one. He says, the one. He says, this is the one that takes away the sin of the world. And, and so when we look at that, what is the evidence? Here is this man, John, who from the very beginning, remember back in December we were preaching and saying, this was somebody who was filled from his birth with the Holy Spirit, and actually in the womb filled. And, and as he comes out, he has a ministry to share Jesus Christ and looking for that day for Jesus Christ to come. And when he sees him, he says, behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world. So here you have the evidence of the water, the evidence of the baptism, the first thing that is done in that. John says, this is the one. Now we start stacking the evidence on top. And at a point it is undeniable of who he is. In the act of baptism, Jesus identifies with sinners. Can I tell you this morning, listen, if we don't get it, did you know that Jesus knows exactly where you're at this morning, emotionally, physically, spiritually? He knows where you're at because he walked this earth as you did. He was tempted in every way that you are, and yet he overcame sin. But when he acted in obedience to being baptized, he was saying, look, folks, I identify with you. Isn't it good to know that we have a God who identifies with us as people? He knows our weakness. He knows our frailties. He knows where we're at. So this morning, when you think about the evidence, this God who died for you understands you this morning and has compassion on you. Not only did he identify with sinners, but as stated earlier, he set the example for obedience. Grab that. He's equal. It's not like God the Father is here, and Jesus somehow ranks down here, and then the Holy Spirit is down here. They are equal. And yet, he said he voluntarily took on the form of a servant and showing obedience. Now, when I said this morning that all of us, as we look at the Word of God this morning, are going to have to come up with a verdict, and we are going to have to accept or reject what the Bible says concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Jim, how, what, is, what is that? Why are you pausing right here? Because let me just say this. Are you going to follow Christ in obedience? Are you going to accept that? Or are you going to reject it? Because the evidence calls for us to accept it and to be a people who follow after Christ. Can I tell you something, Westside Baptist Church? I believe this year will determine, will determine much of the future of Westside Baptist Church. You hear me? I'm just telling you the truth. We're going to have to grab hold of God and say, God, we're not letting go until you give us a blessing. But understand this, we may all walk out of here with a limp when we do it. But if we're going to be with, follow after him, we've got to do it in obedience. We've got to follow after the evidence that Christ did that. Now then, the physical presence of the Holy Spirit 
descending on Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. If you would turn over there, please. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew. A couple of different spots, because here's where the evidence lays out for us to throw out all the Gospels, but just for sake of time, mostly we'll stay in, in the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew 3, 16. After Jesus comes and he says to John, hey, listen, suffer to be so. I'm going to act in obedience. This is needs what's to happen. And verse, matter of fact, let's back up into verse 15. And Jesus answered, saying unto him, suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he suffered him. And Jesus, verse 16, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Let me go ahead and cover verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The physical presence of the Holy Spirit descending on Christ. Look, it says like a dove. Don't know if it was actually a dove, but there was some type of physical presence that as Jesus Christ in an act of obedience comes up out of the water, there was something visible that lighted down on him that signified the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. That was, that was seen by people. It was evidenced by people. It, it, it's there for the writing, and, and again, it's, it comes back to this, dear brethren, uh, brothers and sisters, either we're going to believe what the Bible says, and it says that God's testimony is greater, or we're not. And not only was there a physical presence, but there was also an audible voice. Now, can you imagine at that moment... That you're standing there, you're, you're one of those people, whether you're just sitting and, and watching, or you were there and you were baptized, or maybe it was one of the Pharisees or the Sadducees who had come out to see what in the world that John was doing, and here the Lamb of God comes and acts in obedience, and as he goes down into the water, and he comes back out of the water, there's a physical presence that lights on him, and then immediately thereafter, you hear this spoken from God the heaven verse 17 and lo a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased you see there, there's no question of who christ is god the father speaks from heaven and he says this is my son and again not a son this is my son, the one, physically seen, audibly heard. Now, even more important, see, we're not just going off of what the New Testament says. We're really referencing back, and the Bible students of that day would understand that they're referencing back to the Old Testament. Because here's what the Bible says in Psalm 2 and 7. He says, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. Isaiah, let me, let, me just, let me go ahead and turn to a couple of those. I think it would be good for us to see them. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7 says, I will, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my son. I have begotten thee. 
Now, those who had studied their Bible, they'd be saying, by the Holy Spirit kind of enlightening them, saying, wait a minute, I think I remember reading that. The psalmist said that God would declare that this is my son. And now they hear a voice from heaven saying, behold, this is my son. Look at Isaiah chapter 42, or you can just mark it or write it down and go back and look later. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse, let me look uh, in my notes, uh, 42.1. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Both a reference to Christ. Saying, here's my son whom I delight in. Here's the one who my spirit is on. And so for the Jew, they certainly understood this. There was no denying what had just happened. Here, the spirit of God comes down, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Can I give you another side note? You want to know how to please God? Obey him. Obey him. Because that's what Christ had just done. He has submitted to an act of obedience. He said, suffer to be so. Because we need to fulfill righteousness. He didn't have to be baptized. He did it as an act of obedience. The human part of him, submitting to the God-man. The Spirit, yielding to the Spirit. So we have the water evidenced and what Christ did in his obedience, identification with us, setting the example of obedience, the physical and audible evidence that was given at that moment. Now let's look at the blood. And you can turn over to Matthew chapter 27 because we'll be there a bit. The evidence of the blood, as we said earlier, is the witness of his death, his crucifixion. And as the Lord died on that day, he says, listen, here, here, here's his ministry. It begins publicly and it ends publicly. It, it begins with somebody who saying, well, this is just, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, you know, just that carpenter? And then immediately he drifts off, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and he is driven, compelled into the wilderness to be tempted and tested. We'll talk about that in the Spirit's witness. But the blood witness this morning is that crucifixion, the end of his time ministering on this earth. And we see that in Matthew 27 and verse 45, if you would turn there, here is the evidence that the blood gives on that crucifixion. It says, these are just some of the things, but here it is. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now we understand that this is midday. What is happening? There, here is something that is supernatural. This is God speaking, just using uh, the natural surroundings that become supernatural in event. It would be what happens right today. It would happen at noon, and it would go for three hours, and there would be absolute darkness during the middle of the day. Now, can you imagine that? 
I can't. I, I like to think of, of what it must have been like as everybody stood and they're looking up and they're hurling insults. And then there are those disciples who are looking and questioning everything that has happened. And they look at the testimony of the blood, the witness of the blood. And for that three-hour period, a darkness falls on the face of the earth. And we understand that when darkness comes, it is often seen as a sign of judgment from God. And listen, what was taking place at that moment is Jesus Christ was suffering the judgment of the sin of the world. And here he is in darkness. The world shuts down. Darkness prevails over the earth that time. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I know when people just occasionally will see something, now they're flipping out. It's one thing to see an eclipse to where it's not even totally darkened out, but for three hours darkness on the face of the earth, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence screams that this is the Son of God. Not only that, but look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, and I won't, I won't even go over the how to say it. I hear so many pastors say it, and we probably all get it wrong. Let me just translate it for the way it's written. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot of bogus teaching on that these days, but would you turn with me to Psalm 22 and verse 1? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from my words, from my roaring? It's prophetic. Psalm 22.1 is about that day, that time that was coming, that Jesus Christ would hang on a cross and he would cry out and feel forsaken. Bearing the weight of sin, not his sin, our sin. Amen. He didn't deserve it, we deserved it. And he cries out, my God, my God. I cannot imagine the pain that our Lord was enduring at that moment after suffering beating after being exhausted on a cross of hanging and, and to the point where he, he would start to suffocate because his diaphragm would start to shut down and he would push himself back up. Imagine the rawness of his back and all that being scraped loose once again every time he would rise up again and he's crying out, Oh God, where are you? And why is he doing it? Because it was said he would say it. You see, isn't it amazing? It would be, ladies and gentlemen, it would be a, a fool this morning to ignore the evidence of this. That thousands of years before, God wrote it down saying this is how it will happen. And then to see it played out. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51 Let me, let me back up and, and 
I, I want to get, a, let me just back up and read some of this. We, we, can't, we can't ignore it. Verse 47, some of them that stood there, when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran up and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Now they're starting to pay attention a little bit. And when Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks, and the rocks rent. Now let me just talk about that for a moment. He cries out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up the ghost. Uh, it, you know, here's something that I think that you and I need to grab concerning this. They didn't kill Jesus. He decided when he would depart. He decided that. As a matter of fact, they were surprised that he was dead. But I want you to see something there in verse 51. It says, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Why is that important? The veil of the temple was that veil that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies. And you see, there was only one priest, the high priest, that could go back in there. And it was so, so dangerous even for that because God is so holy that when he would go in there, he had bells attached to him to make sure they could hear him working. And they would tie a rope to his foot in case he was killed and that they could drag his body back out because they dare not go in to that place where the Holy of Holies, where God was said to reside. And it says at the moment when he cried out and at his death, it says that that, that and that we're, not talking, we're not talking a simple curtain, folks. We're talking a woven curtain that was huge. And it says that God took that and tore it from top to bottom, exposing and opening up that way that we are now having the opportunity to be in the presence of God Almighty. You grab that. You see, that, that, that's amazing. Not only do you see all of this darkness, not only do you see uh, prophecy being fulfilled, now you have this veil that separated us from God where we had to have a priest go for, for us. Now we, the Bible says we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has for once made an offering for all time. It's in the book of Hebrews. That veil is ripped open, and you and I have the privilege of coming into the presence of Almighty God. Folks, that's what we're doing right now. If it had been in the old days, we'd all be a bunch of corpses here. Because our sin could never allow us to come into the presence of God. But because of Jesus Christ, we are able to do that. That veil was torn from top to bottom, opening that way for us to come and worship him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, again, let's start there. And the veil, behold, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. In other words, they broke open. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves, and, after, and, at, came, and came out of the graves, listen, after his resurrection. I want you to get that. We'll talk about it in a moment and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. 
And now, I just want to read one more. We'll come back on it again. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's break that evidence down a little bit further. It says that not only was that veil torn from top to bottom, but an earthquake that split the rocks. At that moment when Christ yielded up the ghost and he says, unto your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, it says that there was a great earthquake and rocks were broken open. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I've been in a couple of them when I was in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, it's, it's a weird thing and they, they were minor. I can't imagine what it was like at that point but not only were the rocks broken and open but it says also that there were the dead that were raised. Not just dead but believers and it didn't say all believers. It says Many believers. We don't know how many, but can you imagine that there might have been some of them that were thousands, you know, a couple of thousand years old, hundred years old? We don't know who came out of the grave. But folks, it was evidenced and it was recorded. Even Josephus writes about this, who was not a believer and a follower. He writes about it. Says the dead. After Christ, well, listen, why is it important that Christ was raised first? Why was it important that he was raised from the dead first? Because it says he's the first fruits. And not one thing happens in the Bible that God has not ordered. It doesn't get out of sequence. It's always just the way he says. Now, I can't imagine what it must have been like. And we don't know what those dead went and told and witnessed and shared with those in the city. But it was true. And it happened because history records it. Matthew 27, 54 says a Roman soldier, a centurion, he's a guy who's in charge, says that he and those with him, when they saw all these things said truly this is the son of God this is the one a battle hardened man a man that had authority over others a man who was probably there in charge of the very things that had transpired probably one of those who had been there saying put the nails in his hands put the nails in his feet drive the spear into his side and he says as he saw all of those things he says this is the son of God what a witness what a testimony Third point, or pardon me, third uh, person of the evidence is the Spirit. Look at verse 6 back in our text. Very, very bottom of that uh, verse, it says, And is, it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. The Bible says in the scripture, he says that he will guide us unto all truth and thy word is truth. 
So as we look at the recorded evidence this morning, we are able to see that it is the Spirit who also is a witness of the fact of who Jesus Christ is. It was the Spirit who descended on him as he was baptized. It was the Spirit that compelled him to go into uh, the wilderness to be tempted. It was the Spirit who spoke to him and told him which way to go. It was the Spirit that empowered him to do the miracles that he did. It was the Spirit that enabled him in his ministry. The Spirit witnessed to the testimony of who Jesus Christ is, who is the Son of God. And I will dare say this morning that if you're here listening to my voice and to the word of God, it is the spirit that is bearing witness to your soul this morning that this is true. Now then, let me get to the verdict. We find the verdict in verses 10, 11, and 12. This is our third and final point. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself, and he that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Pretty simple. The verdict. The verdict is found in verse 11 that this and that in Jesus Christ is found eternal life. You see, there's no other way to have eternal life. You, you understand that, that while we, we have 2018 behind us, it is in the rearview mirror. We will never, never gain that year again. As a matter of fact, this hour is almost over and we will never gain this hour back again. What that means for us this morning is that we are steadily marching toward our eternal destination. Every one of us this morning is moving toward a time that we will stand before Jesus Christ, God, and make a declaration that he is Lord. Verse 10, we either accept... He says, he that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself, and he that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Can you imagine? I hope you can't. If you can, I hope it frightens you that you would stand before God somehow and say, I don't believe that Jesus is the Savior because you make him to be a liar. Can I say this, though, this morning, that if you say, I won't follow Jesus, I, I get this whole church thing, but it's just not for me, you make God to be a liar. And there will be a day you will stand before that God and he will say, depart from me, you wicked, wicked person. And he will be justified because you didn't believe. You see, the evidence is before us. He says, this is the record that he's given us. He's given us the evidence of the water. He's given us the evidence of the blood. He's given us the evidence of the spirit, the testimony of these three. Bear record that in Christ is eternal life. 
Verse 12 is rejection. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. As I've preached through this book, it's turned out a lot different than I anticipated. I believe God's trying to get all of our attention in the fact of what it is to be saved and what it isn't to be saved. He's trying to, to really clarify in our hearts, are, are you sure? And he's given the evidence of what it takes. Just take this test. Do you love him? How do you know you love him? Do you obey him? That's how you know you love him. Do you love other people? That's another test. Over and over he said, these are the things that you know if you're doing this, if this is something you desire, then you know you have eternal life. What does this mean for us as a church in 2019? We've got to personalize it, right? I mean, what's the point? And what is the point of preaching the word if we're not going to take this personally? Enough of entertaining preaching. Enough of bystanding and saying, eh, you know, maybe so, maybe no. You are called to make a decision this morning. Are you going to accept this or are you going to reject it? And if you say, I think I'll go my merry way and do as I've always done, just understand you're accepting or uh, uh, rejecting the testimony. Does that sound harsh? I hope not, because here's what's at stake. Eternal souls are at stake, church. That's what's at stake. I'm telling you, you can go to a lot of places right now and get feel-good sermons. And you walk out feeling good about yourself. And, and I want us to walk out feeling assured of who we are in Christ. Not necessarily feeling good. Because believe me, sometimes I don't feel good. I feel good about this one. <laughs> you know, well, especially after last week, I thought I was close to death. And I don't even remember preaching last week. I was so sick. But can I say something else? Now, this, this may manifest. If this, if this hurts your feelings, pray, come up, and I'll forgive you for it later, okay? Some of you are going to get that after you get home and start eating. But it's time we quit making it's time we quit making excuses for people that we love who show no evidence of being a believer in Jesus Christ. You hear me? I've got, I've got family members say, well, I'm a Christian. We're talking about evidence this morning, and I look and I say, the evidence isn't there. The evidence isn't there. If you've got wayward children, stop acting like that they're, that they're, they're fine. Start getting on your face and crying out and saying, Oh, God, have mercy. If you've got a wayward spouse, don't make excuses. Cry out and say, God, by your spirit, show them the evidence and they will know the truth. 2019 is desperate for us, church. Desperate. We're one year closer to our Lord coming. 
He's not tearing. That's a, that's, the Lord's not tearing. He's got a date. <laughs> There's a date. We don't know what the day is, but it's coming. And praying's not going to stop him coming. He's coming when he said he's coming. Just like he came on a specific day that we just celebrated, he's coming back on a specific day. Our job is to go share the evidence. It's a must. It's a must. I'm going to ask you to do something. I, I have. If you're able. I know some of you may not be able to. And if it's, if it's something that you believe God would have you to. I don't want you to feel that you need to do it because I'm asking you to do it. Or because others would do it. But would you come to the altar? And pray. And say, God. Would you move us as a people? Would you work in this community by your spirit to convict men and women and young people of their sin? And, and again, don't feel compelled to come. If, if you're not able to, please just pray where you're at. Father, God, as your people pray before you this morning, so grateful that you hear the prayers of your people. Lord, you tell us that if we pray anything according to your will, God, that you would do it. Father, we know that it's your will that your church will grow spiritually. Father, we know that it's your will that people would be saved. We know that it's your will that we would be holy. God, we're at that point that we can do nothing but ask you to intervene. That by your spirit, oh God, that you would work in your people first. God, that we would be moved as a people to have a burden and compassion for those around us. Focus our eyes to the fields that are white. Break us, O oh God, of our pride. Give us a spirit of humility, Lord, to love each other, 
to love the lost, to love you. Father, we pray that this year, your Lord, your year, God, that this would be a year that we could set back as your church at Westside and say, and oh, behold what God has done. And that this time next year, we could see just the reward of souls saved, lives changed, Christians edified and built up, discipled for your kingdom. Thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And Lord Jesus, as a church, we pray that we would be careful to make you preeminent in everything that we do. That we would point people to you and you alone. And that you and you alone would be glorified in your church, which is yours. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.